HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. Welcome to Meet and Three, Heritage Radio Network's weekly food news roundup. I'm your host and executive director of HRN, Katie Mosman-Wadler. Last week, a few of us from HRN traveled to Oregon to take part in Feast Portland with four days of delicious food and some very deep conversations in an Airstream trailer. We totally get why Feast organizers call the festival a movement that showcases the energy, creativity, and enthusiasm driving America's food revolution. So sit back and enjoy some highlights from the revolution. Let's begin with one of the most buzzed-about events at Feast Portland this year, the Zero Proof Dinner. It's something that privately a whole bunch of us have been talking about for the last four or five years. And uh, Gabe Rucker, local superstar, was really the one who sort of drove it home with the Feast people, without whose support it wouldn't be possible. That's Andrew Zimmern, four-time James Beard award-winning TV personality. He's talking about the importance of throwing an alcohol-free dinner at a food festival with me and HRN host Andrew Friedman. It sold out in like a minute and a half, two minutes online. And the point that we're trying to make, and I think every chef who's participating has a different take on it. And we have, we have I think it's five chefs and uh, one sober bartender, is you don't have to have booze to have a good time. This is a cause that's so personal to many people in the industry who struggle with addiction. It's about bringing empathy, I guess, into the kitchen. I know that sounds too uh, crunchy, but the fact of the matter is, is that I think kitchens are a space where more empathy would be a really good thing. And this this dinner, I I hope, would be the first of many. Um, and I hope that it opens up a lot of conversation about that stuff. I feel like this industry, your industry is having a, like a moment right now. Absolutely. First you put the cork in the bottle and then a lot of problems go away. And then you start to get into what I call emotional sobriety at some mm. point where you actually start to work on the real shit. I think there's more people in our industry talking about everything from yoga to going to a shrink to you know what they talk about with their therapist. More of that chat in the last six months than in the previous twenty years combined. I love it because it it you know if you're vulnerable, if you are transparent, it's amazing how how empowered you become. And people 
people really feel it's the opposite. We came up in kitchens where it's like, tough it out. Don't tell anyone how tired you are. You won't get the extra shift. Award-winning chef Michael Solomonoff also participated in the Zero Proof Dinner and opened up to Andrew Friedman about one specific change he's making at his Philly restaurants, including Zahav, since going to rehab in 2008. You have coffee in this Airstream, for the love of God, right? <laughs> Are you in desperate need of a coffee? I mean, if we're going to talk, like, drugs, maybe, I don't know. Do you want my latte? Absolutely, awesome. yeah. It is especially difficult to be in recovery and be in your business, is it not? I mean, yes and no. When I was, like, in rehab and detox, mm-hmm. the first thing, everyone's like, you, aren't, you shouldn't be in this industry. And I'm like, well, what am I supposed to do? I own a restaurant. Yeah. You know, what am I supposed to just, like, walk away from it? Sam was my sous chef. I called him on the way to detox mm. and said, hey, dude, just so you know, I've been hiding like a crack addiction for the past, as long as I've known you. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how long I'm going to be in detox for. And, we, you know, we had opened Zahav. Zahav was three months old. Really, truly, addiction affects every, everybody. Yeah. Right? I mean, yeah. there is not one family in the U.S. that's not... The, 100%. You know, and I think that just now... We're starting to realize that, like, it doesn't need to be this way. I mean, in the restaurants, we have dealt with gender inequality, immigration, and addiction from day one, right? And it's something that we have been really trying to change and deal with. And so I had to come back from that, look at every single person that I would lied to, taken advantage of, manipulated, you know, also managed. I mean, it was the yeah. like, leader and, and say, you know, I've got this huge problem and, like, we need to change. Yeah. You know, and so it was like, all right, well, we're not going to have shift drinks anymore mm-hmm. in the restaurant. You made that change. I made that change because it doesn't make any sense. First of all, it, uh, you can't just give out alcohol to your employees and, and think that that's like professional. Right. Right. Yeah. Secondly, I can't be around that. Yes. It's my kitchen. It's my restaurant. Yeah. Like, I'm not going to I'm not putting myself in that position. Instead, Michael and Andrew are part of a revolutionary shift, one that is pushing chefs to get used to showing their demons as much as their knife skills. According to Andrew, it's working. Chefs are now so comfortable talking about their their mistakes. They're more comfortable talking about what's actually happening in their lives. But every human being out there on the street, I'm I'm in a airstream and I'm looking at people on the street. There's not a human being out there that doesn't have the exact same issues. 100%. So if you want human beings to relate to you and you want to make a difference in the world, all you have to do is tell the truth and be transparent without being hurtful to others. Right, this is emotional libertarianism. Yeah, oh, I love... <laughs> See, I told you this was a great conversation, right? To hear even more great stuff from our conversations with Michael Solomonoff and Andrew Zimmern, check out episodes 161 and 167 of Heritage Radio Network On Tour. Monique Sue has been a key figure in the Portland restaurant scene since she opened Zephyro in 1990 with partners Bruce Carey and Chris Israel. Zephyro was a notable turning point towards seasonality and fine dining for the Portland restaurant scene. Monique now runs Castagna and OK Omens with her husband, Kevin Gibson. Our interviewer, Elias Cairo, worked at Castagna before launching his world-class charcuterie company, Olympia Provisions. Eli invited Monique to share her insights. To begin... How did Portland become a foodie mecca in the first place? Well, I think part of it is that up until recently, it's a pretty comfortable, easy place to live. 
Yep. You know what I mean? You could have a good life, and rents were inexpensive. You could find a warehouse space. You could... Not you know, pull permits and, and build restaurants. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, even you could open a restaurant yeah. and afford it. Yeah. And that's still somewhat true, but it's getting less true. Yeah, very much so. And then also just the natural resources are great and the, you know, mm-hmm. the the farmers are great. So there's just a lot of bounty, I mm-hmm. guess you'd say. In the 20 years that you've been operating restaurants, is that right? 20-some oh, years now? 20-some, yeah. Oh, unreal. In Portland, what would you say the biggest change has been? Like the food scene, just curious. I guess the biggest is kind of what we've been talking about, the availability oh, yeah. of uh, product mm-hmm. and the variety of the product and the quality of the product is, you know, amazingly different. And I guess that you look at so many restaurants and the the quality of the produce they're using mm-hmm. is so amazing and that just wasn't available back then. Yeah, I know. So. It's nuts. I remember, I can remember when Kevin and you brought in like the first Padrones. Uh-huh. Do you remember that? Yeah. And it was like, oh my God, these things are these little sweet peppers we can saute and char and we can yeah. just put salt on them. And now you can get them like 40 different thousand ways in every single restaurant right, in Portland. Right. But we were like, oh, yeah. 2007. We were like so excited that we had these little Spanish peppers. But yeah, so now you go, there's everything. It's kind of phenomenal. Yeah. Do you like the Portland food scene right now? Be honest. Um, I think... Everyone could try harder. I I think there's wonderful product. I love the energy of it. Mm -hmm. I love the excitement of it. I get sad because I don't think we push ourselves hard enough or push the cooks hard enough in terms of their skills. Mm -hmm. And I think we could respect what we have here more. What piece of advice would you give somebody that's opening up their first restaurant in their mid-30s tomorrow besides do not do it? Uh, what is the piece of advice that you would give us? Well, I guess it would be do not do it for money. <laughs> <laughs> so good. Yeah. That's so true. I mean, there are so many things I love about it, uh-huh. and it's that combination of creativity and um, fostering other people's creativity I think is exciting. So you're doing something creative but you're always a team. Yeah. You can't do it by yourself. So every night it's getting everyone together and, you know, yeah. making something beautiful for other people. Yeah. Um, yeah that's so, but, so unbelievably true. Nate Tilden, also my business partner, also has a bunch of restaurants here in Portland as well. Uh, we reflect back on how Monique treated us and made us like think that, you know, we're here preserving food and serving food and serving people. But the big benefit that we get is we get to sit down every night, talk about wine, what we're drinking, and eat an amazing meal together. And that is never missed. And so, I mean, even to this day, yeah, every one of except, our places. Yeah, except I don't stay till the bitter end usually anymore. Not unless I'm there and then we sit around <laughs> and we try some bush meals and yeah. see if it still tastes the same. Yeah. <laughs> big thanks to Monique Sue and Elias Cairo. You can hear their interview in full on episode 177 of HRN On Tour. We'll be back after a short break with more wisdom from Feast. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. The Hearst family has been raising cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of California's Central Coast for over 150 years. Piedra Blanca Rancho in San Simeon is the original Hearst Ranch, founded by George Hearst in 1865. George's son was the famous publisher, William Randolph Hearst. In addition to being known for building the iconic Hearst Castle, William was, like his father before him, an avid rancher. In his words, 
I would rather spend a month at the ranch than any place in the world. Thanks to one of the largest land conservation easements in California history, a joint effort with the California Rangeland Trust, the American Land Conservancy, and the state of California, the working landscape at Hearst Ranch will be preserved forever. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. Welcome back to Meet and Three. This week, we're bringing you some of our favorite moments from Feast Portland. We were lucky to bring along two HRN hosts, Andrew Friedman and Dana Cowan. Both of their shows, Andrew Talks to Chefs and Speaking Broadly, feature long-form, in-depth interviews with chefs and food industry insiders. These two pros helped us explore the intersections of food and identity with a killer lineup of world-class chefs. Here's Rachel Yang, one of the chefs behind Portland's Revelry and three other restaurants in Seattle, on how cooking helped her define her international identity. And I think the more than anything, the biggest thing was that cooking, food became my third language. I didn't have to be Korean. I didn't have to be American. There was a one thing that was understood by everyone universally. And food is one thing that I tell my cooks all the time. Is it's so honest. Like, you work hard. You put a lot of yourself in it. Like, you would show like, people how much you think the, the care you put in, like, the love you put in. Like, people will taste it. Right. So I felt like... Like, cause, I mean, I really felt like, you know, after college, I was lost between being Korean and being American. I, didn't was, I was neither. And I think when I became a cook, I was like, this, that, that gave me an identity of who I was and I am now. Andrew spoke to Diego Galicia and Rico Torres behind San Antonio's Michli about how growing up on different sides of the Mexican-American border shaped their partnership and how their heritage influences an ever-shifting menu. Okay, you grew up... In, in Toluca, Mexico. That's correct. You grew up north of the border mm-hmm. in Texas. Right. How has that, if at all, of like when you when you just said you wanted to kind of draw the line, right, between Tex-Mex and like you two literally grew up on different sides of that line. How has that informed the collaboration? I'm going to answer that in a very all, yeah. All. It's very simple. I'm going to answer in a in a in a Rico way because we have something common. It's in our DNA. We have this intangible thing that we share together uh-huh. that speaks to each other without us having to talk to each other, uh-huh. uh, which is our identity, our, our, our Mexicanhood, right? Um, and that's what pretty much glues us together. Uh, and that's what pushed the restaurant to get to where it is now, you know? So we have this unspoken thing that we share together that's in our DNA. We, both of us being of Mexican heritage uh, that kind of just flows and works and, you know. Right, and, and this desire to to respect it and to, to just see it for all that beauty that is. And sometimes you see, like, these... I hate to use this word, but these bastardized versions of of Mexican food, and then they turn into these like melted cheesy things and a little salad on the corner, and yeah. Yeah, it's out of respect. We wanted to put Mexican back and polish it up and, and kind of heal it up a little bit, and that's kind of where it started. Dana Cowan spoke to Rima Seal about how her Arab roots shaped her viewpoint on food, identity, and hospitality. For the owner of Reims, California, who was a community and labor organizer in a past life. It's all about creating a gathering place where people from all walks of life can fully embrace their own identity with a side of empathy. I mean, I think that um, what I want people to feel like when they walk in my space is that they can be who they are. You know, they don't have to fear all the things outside those doors. Um, And if you're coming as you are, sometimes that's not necessarily um, comfortable. But I think we do it in a very organic way in the sense that um, Arab hospitality, like at its core, is really about sort of being welcoming to anybody and everybody. And um, 
to being able to tell our story and to invite you and, and, and to do it through the senses, right? We like to feed people. That's how we show our hospitality. And so I think that sort of building that trust with the people um, that come into our doors um, kind of shifts people's, shifts their thinking about who Arabs are or, you know, like what, because all they get bombarded with is what the mainstream talks about. Um, and maybe when they walk outside those doors, they might think of things a little bit differently. The more chefs talked about how their personal history and family ties shaped their culinary identities, the more we noticed that there was one theme that popped up quite a lot, the overwhelming influence of grandmothers. For Emma Bankson, the two Michelin-starred chef of Akavit, her earliest ideas of how to operate a kitchen came from visits to her grandmother's home. I was always allowed in the kitchen with her, but she was always super organized and ahead of time with everything. So I think in a way I might have been a little bit more in the way than helping. <laughs> so I would taste it and I would look and I would see what she was doing. And then when I returned back home, I would go crazy myself in the kitchen making a mess and, and figuring out like how to perfect different things uh, uh, much to despair of my parents cleaning up after me. Kristen Murray the chef owner behind the dreamy pastry luncheonette Maurice recalled her formative food memories. For me it, it was being raised by my grandmother and my great aunt but in California um, everything was so fresh and uh, I was sort of the odd kid that had the avocado munster butter lettuce sandwich with homemade persimmon walnut cookies. Yeah, I didn't realize how unique and special that was. Some chefs paid homage to their grandmothers through their restaurant names. Maya Lovelace started her pop-up May as a tribute dinner, and it evolved into a restaurant of the same name. I just wanted to do a tribute dinner for my grandmother. Um, when I moved out to Portland, um, I spent all my money, you know, staying in hotels along the way and spending all my money on gas and, you know, that deposit on my first apartment and all that stuff. Um, and after I moved to Portland, about six months later, my grandmother, May, passed away. Um, and at that point, I had spent all my money and I did not have the money to take a trip home. And I could not get the time off from work to go to her funeral. So I felt like I kind of needed to have some form of penance um, some way to pay a tribute to her on my own. Um, so I wanted to just do a dinner that was inspired by her table, um, the dinners that I remember having at her house every time I would go to see her. She was obviously a master of hospitality. While not a chef, Jill Keeler of Freeland Spirits is another force in the Portland food and beverage scene. She also borrowed her grandmother's name when she started distilling gin and rye whiskey. Freeland Spirits is named after my grandma Freeland, um, Mima never touched a drop of booze in her life and now has a distillery named after her. Um, but I grew up in her garden and just really she taught me all good things come from scratch and women can be anyone they want to be. One of the most compelling stories we heard was from Bonnie Morales, the chef co-owner of Kachka, a Portland restaurant serving food and drink of the former Soviet Union. Uh, when I was a little girl, uh, my dad would tell me stories about my 
my family that um, was uh, lived through the, the World War II and um, what that meant being Jewish in, in Belarus and in Russia was, um, you know, persecution and the Holocaust. So um, my grandmother fled a ghetto in the middle of the night um, and all her family was um, died the next day um, in a mass grave. So she left alone. Yeah, well, with a baby, a three-month-old infant, and it was October and the coldest winter in, you know, Eastern Europe's history. Um, she traveled through the forests and headed um, east towards Russia, because she was in Belarus at the time. She ended up in Smolensk um, and uh, fought as a partisan there. Um, but along the way, she, you know, met a lot of people that, you know, uh, wanted bad things to happen to her. Um, and one of them was a town warden. She had, you know, gone into a town for provisions and all that. And this guy was like, you're, no, you're a Jew. Her story at the time was that um, uh, she was a Ukrainian peasant, peasant traveling to Russia to uh, find her in-laws. Um, and uh, he, you know, he kept sort of like bugging her about that. And uh, eventually he said, well, if you're, if you're really Ukrainian, then how do you say duck in Ukrainian? I know they're all speaking in Russian. This is Soviet Union across all of these um, areas, even though each country has their own native language. Everybody speaks Russian. Um, so she just, you know, hoped that and she spoke Yiddish at home and she knew the Yiddish word. And, and there are some times when they're the same. And she just hoped that maybe this one was. And she said, Kachka, and he let her go. Thanks to Emma Bankson, Kristen Murray, Maya Lovelace, Jill Keeler, and Bonnie Morales for sharing their inspiring stories about how their grandmothers shaped their lives and culinary aspirations. And thanks to Michelle Batista and Dana Cowan for these interviews. We're wrapping up this week's show with a thought from James Beard award-winning writer and bartender Jim Meehan, who recently relocated from New York City to Portland. Dana asked Jim his thoughts on the future of cocktails. What I'm excited about is as alcohol sort of role evolves in the culinary world and hopefully in the bar world as well, that people will drink less but drink better. Another possibility? I think that, you know, especially in places like Oregon where recreational marijuana is legal, I think as we see marijuana becoming legal uh, nationwide, there's a lot of people who drink alcohol for, for almost to sedate themselves or to sort of tune out, uh, just to dull their senses. And I feel like those people will, will gravitate towards chocolate pot brownies. So with that, tune in to next week's episode of Meat and 3 when we ask ourselves, is the grass greener on the other side? Special thanks this week to the team at Feast Portland for including us in this year's festival. And a shout out for having raised more than $400,000 to help end hunger since the festival's inception in 2012. Thanks also to Travel Portland, Stream PDX, Hazelfern Cellars, and the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts for making our coverage of Feast possible. Thanks too to all the pickles at Little Green Pickle. Meet and Three is produced by Liza Hamm, Hannah Forden, Kat Johnson, and me, Katie Mosman-Wadler. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson, and our field recording engineer at Feast Portland is Aaron Parecki. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. Meet and Three is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. 
Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio.